Hi guys, Paul from the innovation community here. Today, I'm with Suna Gablegaard from Nets. Uh, Suna has a very interesting background. He cut his data chops as a Danish police officer and, and carpenter. And uh, while he was a police officer, uh, helped with the analysis of metadata there. And he now helps Nets predict fraud and, and does the, the research and analysis there. So great to have you with us, Suna. Thanks for inviting me. Great pleasure to be here. So I, I touched on your background a, a little bit there. Tell me a bit about yourself in, in your own words. Yeah, so yeah, I might have a, a slightly different background than, than normal people working with, uh, with data and, and AI and, and such technology. So it all started out for me um, uh, with the data thing when I was in the police. But actually before that, I would say that uh, what kind of, you know, make the biggest difference for me uh, was actually when I worked as a carpenter because that is where I got the foundation for the way I work today and the way I try to inspire my team to work with the learning by doing and, and touching stuff and breaking things instead of, you know, seeing from a, a very academic level. So, so that's uh, the main thing, uh, the carpenter thing. And then, uh, yeah, then I worked in, in police. I, I started out patrolling the streets and then I, I worked myself into investigation and analysis and a lot of other exciting stuff. So I pretty much touched on every kind of, uh, you know, type of work in the police. And, uh, and that is also, you know, going back to the carpenter stuff, uh, that is learning by doing. So that is the way I've worked all my life. Uh, mm. And then uh, in 14, I, I joined the financial sector working, uh, for the, the largest bank in Denmark. And pretty much I did the same. So, um, started by learning by doing the hard way and had a lot of great colleagues I could learn from. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much my background. And I also have a, a lot of, uh, of um, analysis uh, background, uh, not uh, only related to data, but just understanding uh, what analysis actually is and, uh, and applying a lot of critical thinking. Uh, so I think that's, that's very much kind of summing it up to, to where I am today. Absolutely. And uh, what really interests you about working with analysis and, and especially in the role you're in now, because that's super interesting. And so I think that the, that the main difference uh, uh, that I feel I make is that uh, that actually are kind of contributing to protecting the society, you know, without that sounding too uh, high, high level. But uh, but I'm combating fraud and uh, and by coincidence, I'm working at NETS. But in my life, I'm on a mission to combat fraud. So that that is what I kind of brought with me. And I'm, I'm just, you know, not surprised, but I'm just very happy that, you know, analyzing stuff can actually make a huge difference. Uh, and sometimes I, I think back of, of the days when I was patrolling the streets. If I just, you know, had the knowledge I have today on, on analysis, I, I think that, uh, you know, I could have, achieved even more working the streets if I had had some kind of analytical thinking and maybe some support, analytical support back in those days. So I think that that is kind of what, uh, you know, that, that tells me a lot that, uh, that, you know, picking data and uh, analyzing data can actually make a difference for, for people in their daily, uh, daily life.
that's uh, that's I feel that's amazing. Absolutely, that's a very important mission, I think. And just diving into that a bit deeper, what are some of the major successes that you've achieved over your career? Yeah, so I think that the thinking of data, um, uh, because there's a lot of stuff besides the data that I think of, but uh, if I'm thinking of data, I think that uh, some of the major achievements was uh, in, in the police where I joined a department uh, in the end of my career in police uh, that it hold the name um, analysis group. But what I realized was that there was actually not a group of, of, of people doing analysis, more, more like uh, people doing uh, presentations uh, for cases that were going to court. So of course that's very important. So so that people will get prosecuted like uh, they're supposed to do, but it was not, in my opinion, analysis. And and that is uh, that is one of the first achievements I made that I actually was capable of, together with my manager, to change that department completely into an analysis department uh, and actually living up to the name and and start giving back into investigations. And I I work with a lot of very very skilled investigators that have been doing investigations for many many years. And uh, I was kind of that newcomer, uh, you know, joining with the uh, with not the same deep knowledge on on investigations as they had. Uh, and then I had to convince them that you know what I found in data could be valuable for them. And and that was you know a, a very eye-opening experience for me. And I think that's that's one of uh, the major achievements that I actually achieved to be able to deliver smoking guns in. Uh, in every investigations that that uh, department were doing and that was uh, bits and pieces that were picked up in the data so I, I would say that that would be the biggest and and that's also kind of because it serves as as the foundation for for what i'm doing today hmm. absolutely and the the people who we work with in, in business these days won't associate that uh, you know how we can use data to to really make the world a better place and that's a, a direct impact that you made as well uh, what was the role of technology when you were in that role and also in the role you're in now and what what effects do you think this will have over the next few years yeah so i i think that um uh, thinking about nets and technology um we we have been working with uh, with you know what what is called ai today we've been working with that for years and it keeps on surprising me what the potential in, in the different parts of, of AI. Uh, AI is a little bit of a buzzword, um, but, um, but I think that, you know, if you look at all the components of AI, uh, that keeps on surprising me what you can actually do with that. So uh, I think that for me, it's still working with a lot of the technologies that have been used as buzzword the past years. So that is to, you know, basically get more out of what we already have today. So I think there's so much potential in, in the stuff that we are working with and, uh, and we can make it even better. Um, with all, also without having to invest too much into a lot of new technologies. I think it's, it's, it's more about getting the most out of what we got. That's actually, I think that's quite exciting to, to think like that and, and see that, that you have a lot of technologies available and, and still be able to, you know, proceed and make uh, improvements without investing billions in, in new technology. 
Yes, yes, completely agree. I think a lot of it comes down to to people and process, and and as you said, using what we already have as well. Uh, I imagine that you work with a, a a number of other people on on these issues. What, how would you describe your leadership style? Yeah, so I think that um, actually, when when I joined the financial sector, um, I only had a couple of years' experience with the with the the management on on team uh, leading level so when i joined the financial sector in 2014 um, i actually was you know trusted very much from my leader that that i could run this area uh, all on myself without really being you know a formalized leader and i did and uh, and i kind of achieved you know that all my my colleagues joining me kind of you know um, could see that I, I kind of had that thought leadership uh, approach. So I was not the boss. I was more like a, a leader trying to lead people in the right direction and uh, encourage them to do uh, what I um, what I feel that, that people need to do. And, and that is what I've also brought with me uh, into NETS. So, so I'm, um, I'm more like, you know, a subject matter expert leader than I'm a, a formalized leader of people. So um, that's also one of, you know, the requirements I did uh, before joining this that, you know, I, I want uh, to have time to deep dive into, uh, um, you know, the subjects that we're working with. I cannot just lead people through this. I need to have hands on and, and understand it myself. So that is kind of what a, uh, the way I work with it and, and then it's it's very much about trusting people so I don't hire people in to uh, you know tell them what to do um, I hire them because they have a different background than myself and also a different background than uh, the other colleagues in, in my department so that is actually the most important thing for me is that, that we are very different and, uh, and then I just encourage people to be very curious and also keep on asking why and uh, and also interfere with areas that you're not working with yourself and, and go and ask your, your colleague stupid questions. I think that that is what I try to do just to ensure that we don't, you know, get radicalized and, and, and end up uh, making mistakes. So yeah, encouraging people to be curious and, and, and trying to lead them and, and guide them to, to ask the right questions. That's kind of, yeah, I think that sums it up somehow. That, that was very good. No, I was always of the mindset that there is no such thing as a stupid question. Uh, just to, to, to be, enable people to, to feel comfortable in asking uh, questions. You know, I, that, that's the mindset that I go in with. And how do you communicate up the chain, you know, to senior leadership with, with maybe new ideas or, or with initiatives that you guys are working on? Do you have a different strategy there or is it the same thing? Uh, it's a little bit different, but I just wanted to add to on top of what you just said that you know um, before people they feel comfortable with asking that why and that stupid question, you need to tell them that it's okay. So that's why it's so important for me to mention that for for my employees that you know you're actually obliged to ask that question, you know, the stupid questions and and actually sometimes I even encourage them to you know even though we all agree, then please. Uh, argue against it because then we can have that discussion and ensure that we don't make those mistakes. But upstream with my management, I think I have, uh, you know, uh, 
I have an approach where I try to uh, to translate um, some of the very technical stuff into something that makes sense for everybody. Because I think that um, also looking back at my my start in the financial sector, I, I realized that the, the area cybersecurity was growing. And what I also found very interesting was that it seemed to me like the IT departments working in cybersecurity, they kind of invented um, a tribe language that nobody understands. So um, I, I experienced uh, IT cybersecurity department that were, you know, talking that tribe language to managers and actually succeeded with that because a lot of the managers, they didn't understand what the IT security people were saying. So they just, you know, handed over more money uh, because this threat they were talking about just sounded very, very, very difficult. And, and this can be very, very bad. So we just need to add more money. And uh, I actually don't like that approach. Mm. Um, so, so I try to translate it. So they actually understand what it is that I'm talking about. Uh, and it's very, very important for me that they understand the detail of, of what I'm talking about. So we can take, you know, mature and, and balanced decision and not uh, based on paranoia, even though, you know, my, my Twitter handle is paranoia pusher, but that's a little bit of a joke. <laughs> uh, it's a reaction to what I realized. Uh, I don't want my managers to take decision based on, uh, you know, panic or, or paranoia. So that's, that's what I try to do. That's a, uh, that's, that's a, that's a really great approach. And where do you see the biggest opportunity for improvement within Nets right now? So I think that um, there's something locally where, with, the, with the things I work with and then uh, for the whole of Nets. And I would say um, it's actually a little bit of the same for both. Um, so I think that um, what we are also learning now is that uh, you know, there's a lot of people working with data in in our uh, corporation, so it's uh, very much a data driven organization. Um, but then there's also a lot of different truth around in uh, in an organization like Nets. So I think that, um, that 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 the most exciting thing and and one of the areas that we're going to move into is to try to converge those truths into one truth. So we can align on on the data. So instead of you know uh, being very uh, siloed, sound very very negative, but um, but I think that in 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 the lack of having an, uh, another word for that, I think that uh, you know still in the data we are a little bit siloed and um, and are working with data in in different departments that kind of uh, might be from the same source, but we have our own interpretation of what the numbers are actually saying. So I think that if we can nail that one, and I'm pretty sure we will be able to do that uh, and converge all these truths into one, then uh, you know exciting stuff can happen. So I think that uh, that is one of the, um, the changes that I think we will uh, we will see in future. Yeah, breaking down silos is always the the biggest challenge for for data and analytics leaders right now as well. Um, you know, you've had a, a very diverse career. What was the biggest mistake that you made during that time? Oh, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, yes. I think that, and there's still, I'm still doing mistakes today. And I think that's, you know, also something that I communicate to my team that they should also make mistakes because otherwise they will not 
you know, they will not succeed with with exciting stuff. But I think that um, one of my biggest mistakes, and that is something very personal, that is that I'm I'm not a very patient guy. So, you know, I want things to happen right now. And uh, that is something I work with, but that is, that have caused some of the major mistakes in, uh, mm. in my career that I was not patient enough to, you know, breathe all the way down your stomach, breathe in and breathe out before, you know, um, reacting. So I think that caused some of the biggest mistake uh, that I made in my career. Well, absolutely. As long as you owned it and, and you learned from it as well. Uh, big questions coming up in in the community right now is the the impact of of, of covid19 and, and coronavirus what are your thoughts on the impact just from a general point of view yeah so i think that there's two versions of that there's uh, my, my my personal view as a as a kind of consumer and then there's uh, the view of uh, of of me as a an employee in that and i think that um, there's a lot of panic uh, and I actually would say that then looking into my data, I can see that uh, some of the, the panic is a little bit unjustified. So in, in our world, we are, we are mainly a card processor. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, of data on, on the card transactions. And, um, and the interesting thing is that it seems like, you know, there's a big movement of where people are spending the money. But it's not like a, a traditional financial crisis. That's at least not what I see. So it's more, you know, um, money moving around to different businesses. And of course, that will have some impact for the businesses that, you know, are not able to um, to sell the product at least the way that they did in the past. But I also think that that, you know, we need to turn that into something positive. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's get out of this bit, you know, uh, uh, without too many casualties, but then let's turn it into something positive and then see, okay, so now as a business, I learned that uh, I lost a lot of money on this crisis. So what can I do, you know, to stop that in future? And by doing that analysis, you, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to identify a new business opportunity. Uh, And I think that every business have an opportunity to do that. Agree, but we've just gone through the same process. So we run face-to-face masterclasses, which obviously with global travel bans, we can't do now. And it's actually spearheaded a project we've had to run virtual sessions where attendees just dial in and it's, it's worked really well. So it's actually a positive that, that from a business perspective we're looking, we're looking at right now. Yeah. And, and I see it all, uh, all around me uh, in my COVID uh, hideaway. I can see that the, the restaurants that, you know, are not, capable of uh, having people in the restaurant they have already now you know uh, started up a business uh, selling takeaway and, mm. and and they were absolutely not takeaway restaurants before and i have never you know seen them as a as a business of uh, of doing a you know takeaway but but they are doing that and and i'm pretty sure that that after this crisis that will be something that they will continue to do so yeah i think that we'll come out of this uh, no stronger. I'm completely confident. Mm, For sure. For sure. Uh, With that note, what's your top working from home tip? Yeah, that's a good one. I think that it's uh, again about uh, patience. So um, here in, in, in Denmark, I think everybody is now working at home 
together with their kids. So the kids are around you. And, uh, and I think that for, for me, um, that have been a kind of an eye opener, uh, for uh, a lot of the stuff that my kids are doing in school. So I think that, uh, that, the that the tip I would give in, in this crisis is, you know, to also take the time to be together with the family and, uh, and then, you know, figure out how, how the work hours suit you best. So when you're working from home, um, you don't have to work for eight hours uh, in a row. You could, you could split that up if that works for you. Mm. Um, so, so work when it, when it suits you and, uh, and, and feel good about that. Um, you are way more effective. I think that's uh, one of the things I learned. We'll produce a lot more. I had the, the first Friday I was working from home. I was uh, I was uh, finishing up my work uh, around uh, lunchtime. And normally I have problems getting out of office at, uh, at 4 p.m. So that was kind of an eye-opener for me, how effective, you know, four hours of work without getting interrupted mm. by anybody could be. So I think that... Uh, that feel good about it and don't feel bad, you know, about uh, not being able to work for those eight hours, because I'm pretty sure that if you just work four, you, you might have produced more than, than, a, than a full eight hours of working day at the office. Yeah, I, I'm sure that people don't want to be doing this for the rest of their life, but it, it does, it is an opener for for maybe people who are more skeptical about letting people work from home and uh, you're getting distracted by an ad hoc meeting, uh, that's stuff that's going to impact productivity. So uh, I, I'm completely on board with you there. What does your normal daily routine look like and how has that, how has that changed? Yeah, so normally, um, you know, I, I start out in the morning from home and uh, walking my kids to school and that's a, part, a very important part of my routine. That is, you know, where I... I start reflecting on what is going to happen today and, uh, and then also walking the dog. But that is completely changed now because uh, today, uh, working from home, I more or less, uh, I start uh, out working from in, in the morning, maybe before the, the kids wake up. Um, so, so that it has changed, but, but on, on a normal day, I would start out when I get to the office to spend an hour on reading my emails. Um, and that is something I have scheduled in my calendar. Um, and that is to get some quality time alone. And also, it doesn't take me an hour to read those mails normally. So that is also, you know, that hour where I will have some time to talk to the people that I want to talk to and not the mm. people that have invited me for a meeting. So I think that, you know, I, I would encourage everybody to put some time slots in their calendar to have some quality time. Uh, alone and, and and where they can decide what to do that that is uh, that is how my day look and then the meeting starts uh, and sometimes there's a lot of meetings i think there's always a lot of meetings yeah i think that one thing that you could do is also to challenge people that invite you for meeting you know to clarify what what is it you need me to do in this meeting and and also uh, try to educate people on that if there's Unless I've just been all by your desk and talking to you, Paul, and, and describe what it is that we need to talk about tomorrow, then you sh could expect me to do an agenda and clarify uh, where I need you to chip in. And if people are not willing to do that, then maybe you should start rejecting their invites. <laughs> because, you know, I think it's very uh, unpolite to, to just invite people to, for meetings. 
luckily, that is not something I have experienced in, in my current job, but I have experienced in the past that, you know, we ending up having neck to neck meetings all day. And uh, when I got to the end of the day, sometimes I had a feeling like, what did I actually do? Where did I make a difference? Mm. And I think that uh, you need you need to start building up that culture. And there's only one way of doing that. And that is being a little bit rude and asking people, please, you know, uh, tell me what it is you expect from me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you present it the right way, it probably doesn't come across as rude. It's probably more direct. And some, some people are receptive to that. You know, I'd, I'd know I'd definitely want someone to tell me if that was the case uh, personally. Yeah, I think I think it's you know it's a cultural thing. So um, some mm. some might experience it as uh, as you being rude when you when you start asking questions. Uh, yeah. Oh, cool. What's the the best piece of advice that you ever received? Hmm. I think that you know. That is also going back to to my period as a carpenter and 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 a police officer. One of the things that uh, you know uh, I learned as a carpenter was not to be afraid of doing something you don't know how to do. So just you know get it started and, and see where it ends, and uh, and maybe you can see some guidance from from one of your colleagues. So when when I started out as a carpenter, I didn't know anything about working with uh, you know with with timber and stuff like that so i had to to learn the hard way and and you know i think that that is very important and then uh, another thing um i also learned uh, and i think that you know, that's also kind of going back to to the way i i kind of communicate both with my my team members but also with management is about you know telling the truth uh, and and that is something I learned when I worked in the police by, by um, an investigator I worked uh, worked together with. He he always uh, you know told the people that we were interrogating that um, just a piece of advice: stick to the truth because it's easier to remember. You know when you start lying, then you know you cannot remember the day after what the lie was about. And and I think that's an important piece for everybody to remember you know, stick to the truth and, and translate it into something that people understand. That is a very important piece of advice. A great thought leader who I admire is uh, Jordan, Dr. Jordan Peterson and his rule number eight, and you might disagree with it is tell the truth or at least don't lie. Because if you get, you, it's so easy to get caught up in the lie. And then even if the lie is based in truth, then it's, 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 um, it's, it's not good for you. <laughs> And especially if you're being interrogated by a police officer, it's definitely not good for you. Absolutely. What are you curious about right now? So um, I think that um, uh, for for a while, you know, I, I kind of uh, understood the value of data. So when I started picking up those pieces um, of evidence in the metadata of investigations, you know, I got curious on on the data part, but what I'm very curious on now is, you know, uh, some of the learnings I had on what you can actually achieve by investing time into, you know, focusing on the data. So instead of focusing so much on uh, new technologies, AI, machine learning, and uh, quantum computer, and all kind of, uh, kind of buzzwords, I think that what you can achieve by just focusing on the data, understanding the data, where it comes from, who manipulated it, 
before it, it hit your uh, system. And, uh, and then, you know, start trusting the data and also ensuring that you can trust the data. That is, you know, an area where I'm very, very curious. I've never uh, before joining Nets been into that depth of, uh, of data. So I, before joining Nets, I was pretty much working with data sources. And now I kind of, uh, you know, went a level down and started digging into the data uh, because this was new to me. So, be, you know, before I could start trusting the data, I needed to understand it. So, so that work, that work is so interesting, you know, getting curated data out of, uh, of the system. And then, you know, being generous with, with the findings you have. So instead of you saying hmm. that now I got my oil, uh, you know, then, then give it away, give it away for free because what you will experience is that when people start using your data source, they will come back and ask questions and maybe your data will, maybe you can, you know, fine tune your data even more with their input. So, uh, so data is not something you should, you know, hold for yourself. I, I experienced that um, uh, in my previous jobs that people were very protective about their data. So, you know, if you need to do something with, with this data that is mine, then uh, we have to do it, then I have to do it. You should not do it. And, uh, and then I had the complete opposite uh, experience when, when joining Nets where people were very open. And, you know, of course I cannot get access to, uh, to all kinds of data without having a, you know, a, a documented purpose with the data, but there's no kind of protection uh, from, uh, you know, the data owner on, you know, that it's my data. No, this is Ned's data. And I think that, you know, that's a great culture and that inspires me a lot um, to, to work that way. Who is your favorite thought leader or author? Yeah, that's actually a good question. I actually think that, um, that my thought leader is, um, and I, I think I will maybe um, avoid mentioning the name because nobody would know that person, um, at least uh, not uh, often in the big world, because that uh, the thought leader is someone I met uh, during my work in the financial sector and uh, to some extent also in the police. And that is the people who, you know, uh, one of them provided me with some, some insights on, on, on the tech side that I have brought with me. Uh, a great way of providing me with an understanding. So that's, uh, you know, that was one of my colleagues. And another of my colleagues learned me how to, um, on uh, combating fraud, how to balance the customer experience. You know, it, the easiest thing in the world is to stop all fraud. Uh, so I could stop um, mm. all fraud in ATMs. That would just be, you know, unplugging all ATMs so they will not function anymore. But, you know, the moment that you think of the balance, and I think that is also one of the most important learnings. So, so my my thought leaders would be some of my uh, my uh, my colleagues, both today and and also from the past. Without naming anybody, uh, I learned a lot from from those people. And uh, author-wise, I think that um, uh, that is also a very uh, a local Danish thing. There's been um, there's been a, a book recently in Denmark about, um, you know, uh, solo work. So uh, that has been very inspiring to read about how people actually in kind of invent new tasks that doesn't make sense just to, you know, get rid of the, the time they have at work. 
So that, that has been a very great inspiration for myself. And actually it was a, a part of, uh, of my decision making when I decided to, to, um, to, uh, to get this new job that I have today. So, yeah, I think I'll not uh, name any of the authors of all the thought leaders, but just saying that they are actually quite close to me, uh, my thought leaders. And do you have a favorite quote by any of them that could be relevant? Yeah, I have one. Um, and to be honest, I'm not sure that, uh, that it's, uh, I'm quoting the right person. But um, you know, there was, um, there was this um, old um, quote from, from Albert Einstein with, uh, you know, you cannot uh, solve the problems with the same methods that created them. And I think that that is very, very interesting to think of that sentence for me as a, as a fraud fighter. Um, especially going into a digital world. So, you know, uh, a lot of the fraud that, that we see today is happening in the digital world and, and thereby is created by, you know, the IT uh, opportunities. And you can combat a lot of fraud with IT and technology, but uh, in the end, all the fraud that I see today more or less uh, started out with a human being making you know, a wrong decision or clicking a phishing link and giving away mm. credentials. So, you know, um, maybe all of the solution is not in tech. Maybe maybe we should go out and, and pick the brains of people and understand why why they actually did this and how we could change that in the world. Maybe we can change something in the tech, but maybe we also need to work with the culture when people are moving from the good old world into the digital world. So I think that's uh, that's very interesting. And last question, what advice would you give for aspiring leaders in analysis? Um, I would say that um, you should take the time to learn you know, how to do the analysis and what it is that your people are doing. Because otherwise you will, uh, you will not be able to lead those people. Then you'll be a boss or a manager. And uh, so get your hands dirty and then have patience and also question your data and be sure that, that the data that you are analyzing on are curated and uh, don't make too many limitations on yourself. So, you know, a good analysis starts with a very, very large data set uh, because uh, if you cut down what you're analyzing, you're already, already starting using your gut feeling. So, so please allow your people to start big and then let them narrow down uh, what they're working on. I think that that's uh, the best piece of advice I can give because, you know, if you, you, if you get it wrong, either the data is wrong or you have filtered away some data that could be important later, then you will not get the best result out of an analysis. And I think that is the biggest mistake I see being done with analysis is that people start narrowing it down and, and thereby getting a kind of a biased data set. Uh, and that is a challenge and it's it's easier said than done mm, for sure that was great advice from Sunak Abelgaard from Nets thanks so much for joining us thanks for inviting me it was a pleasure